we'd like to welcome you back to our current event and weekly Bible study for November 30th, 2008, and we're going to continue the uh, study on Solomon. Um, and again, th- this is I'm saying all this to also relate this to how this will relate to the coming Antichrist. Um, so, chapter 11 of 1 Kings says, But King Solomon loved many strange women. Many. Together with the daughter of Pharaoh, the woman of the Moabites, the Ammonites, the Edomites, the the Zidonians, and the Hittites. These are all the nations that they went to war with previously. A lot of them going into the promised land. Now he's got them as his wives and his concubines. There is no greater way that you can get messed up than having the wrong spouse. Because if you are sexually joining yourself to that person on a regular basis, it is just not, from a demonic standpoint, it is not a good thing for you. A little leaven leaveneth the whole lump. Okay? And this, he had, what we're going to see here, 300 concubines, 700 wives. So you can imagine how demonically infested Solomon was becoming, you know, as time went on. Remember, his first mistake, it says, it says, but King Solomon loved many strange women together with the daughter of Pharaoh. That's the first mistake. He made the affinity with Pharaoh, took his daughter. Now he's like, well, hey, daughter of Pharaoh, that ain't enough. I got to have, you know, 999 more. How ridiculous. And then it says, of the nations concerning which the Lord said under the children of Israel, ye shall not go into them meaning that you shall not take them as wives, neither the men nor the women. The women aren't supposed to take them as husband. And then it says, Neither shall they come in unto you, for surely they will turn away your heart after their gods. He said surely. God said surely. You're not going to change. You're not going to hope to find someone and they're a wicked person, but you see the good in them and... and Bless God, you're going to marry him and change him. That is not biblical. We're not supposed to be unequally yoked together with unbelievers. You will not win that battle. Satan will. Now, I'm not saying if you were married to somebody and then you got saved. Okay, that's that's a different thing we're talking about here. But I'm talking about you as a born-again believer have no scriptural warrant to marry an unsaved person. You're unequally yoked together. We're not supposed to do that. Why? Because God himself says, For surely they will turn away your heart after their gods. Solomon clave unto these in love. Really, he clave unto them in lust. So then we go further. And he had 700 wives, princesses, and 300 concubines. And his wives turned away his heart. For it came to pass when Solomon was old that his wives turn away his heart. Remember, it's not how you start, it's how you finish. You know, that's why the Bible talks about run the race, you know, with patience and endurance and these types of things. For it came to pass when Solomon was old that his wives had turned away his heart after other gods and his heart was not perfect with the Lord his God as the heart of David his father. Does that mean David was walking around in sinless perfection? Obviously not. Because, I mean, look at what David did to Uriah, the Hittite. Okay, I mean, he basically 
in order to, to get Bathsheba as his wife, he sent Uriah up to the front lines, withdrew the troops, Uriah was killed, so he would have justification to marry Bathsheba, who coincidentally ended up being the mother of Solomon. Hmm. Maybe that's why Solomon turned out the way he did, because David really never had any scriptural warrant to be with Bathsheba. Maybe that's why Solomon, although he started out good, turned out so bad at the end. You remember, you reap what you sow, and you always reap far worse than the seed that you sow. You, I mean, in other words, when you plant a plant, if the seed's evil, if the plant's evil, the little seed in and of itself is one thing, but when it grows up, if it grows up into a big tree, and that tree is corrupt, <laughs> you understand what we're talking about here? It's, it's always a lot more. So, Solomon, uh, his heart was not perfect with the Lord, with the Lord as God, as was the heart of David, his father. See, David, the deal with David, though, is he repented. He repented, okay? Like, see Psalm 51. He repented. And he repented humbly, as a little child. But David was a man after God's own heart. He had faith. David had tons of faith. And ultimately, he always repented. That was the big difference between him and Solomon. I don't see any evidence here of Solomon ever repenting. Verse 5. For Solomon went after Ashtaroth. Oh man. The goddess of the Zidonians. And after Milcom. The abomination of the Ammonites. Now these were deities that many times required human sacrifice or child sacrifice in order to appease them. Let's talk about a couple more of those. Verse 6, Solomon did evil in the sight of the Lord. He went not fully after the Lord, as did David his father. Then did Solomon build in high place for Chemosh. Again, this is another wicked deity that requires human sacrifice. Chemosh, the abomination of Moab, in the hill that is before Jerusalem. He had the audacity to do it in the hill that was before Jerusalem, the holy city. This is after he had built the temple. And then, he said he built a high place for Chemosh and for Molech. Molech? Yeah, another one of human sacrifice. The abomination of the children of Ammon. I mean, Molech. The little babies. Was Solomon actually sacrificing his own children at that point? I don't know. I don't know. All I can tell you is that we can biblically prove that Molech and Chemosh, they were sacrificing their children to them at different times in the Bible. Okay? I mean, it's incomprehensible to me to see how far Solomon actually fell. And it should be a warning to us too, to, to as the Bible says, don't think of yourself more highly than ye ought. Consider the pit from which you were dug. And never forget it. And pray for humility before God. In fear of God. Because obviously at this point, Solomon lacked the fear of God. If he really feared God, he wouldn't have got into all this. Well, if he really feared God, he really wouldn't have married these thousand women that, you know, it doesn't look like one of them were, were of, were who he should have been with. doesn't mention it if there were any, uh, godly women that he was with. It doesn't mention them. It only mentions all the pagans that, that he ended up yoking up with. 
And then it says, And likewise did he for all his strange wives, which burnt incense and sacrificed unto their God. And the Lord was angry with Solomon, because his heart was turned away from the Lord God of Israel, which he had appeared unto him twice. I mean, God appeared unto him twice, and he did this. And had commanded him concerning this thing that he should not go after other gods, but he kept not that which the Lord commanded. So, uh, this is a really sad, unfortunate thing here. Now, if we go to, let's just go to Judges 2.13. Okay, so if we go to Judges 2.13, uh, really just 2.12. And they forsook the Lord God of their fathers which brought them out of the land of Egypt and followed other gods of the gods of the people that were round about them and bowed themselves unto them and provoked the Lord unto anger and they forsook the Lord and served Baal and Ashtaroth. And again, we see Ashtaroth here. Okay, Ashtaroth um, were figures of the Ashtaroth, the Phoenician goddess, or Astarte of the Greeks, the Astarte. Okay, the star, remember that. It talks about in the Bible the star of your god, Rimfan, which is a hexagram, a starte. A lot of these are symbolized with stars, okay? Whether five or six pointed, they're both wicked. And this is why they talk about the seal of Solomon, the six pointed hexagram. This is where we start to get this from, okay? They were worshipped as idols during the times of spiritual declension in Israel. Uh, Jeremiah refers to Ashtaroth in uh, Jeremiah 44.18 as the Queen of Heaven, which is a, another way the Catholics will refer to Mary as, as the Queen of Heaven. It's the same devil goddess the Catholics are worshipping. They're not worshipping the real Mary and baby Jesus. We're not supposed to worship Mary anyway. Okay? We're not supposed to do that. The Bible says there's one mediator between God and man, the man Christ Jesus. Very clear on that. We don't go through Mary to get to Jesus. But when we see the whole Mary, supposed Mary figure with the little baby Jesus, what that is is Semiramis and Tammuz. Okay, Tammuz the sun god. Not the son of God, but the sun god. And that's why this whole thing coming up with the abomination of Christmas, you know, when we talk about the birth of the sun god, not the son of God, that is December 25th. Xmas. And I, I re-released re, re my teaching on that this week. You can just look up Xmas or whatever in my teaching box. So if we go to Deuteronomy 16.21 now. Deuteronomy 16.21. And then it says, Thou shalt not plant thee a grove of any trees near unto the altar of the Lord, which thou shalt make thee. Now again, it talks a lot about the groves that they worship in. A lot of times these were uh, oak groves. And the groves, so often mentioned in the Old Testament, were devoted to the worship of Astaroth, or Astarte, the Babylonian goddess Ishtar, which is where we get the word Easter. Okay? And then again, we've done a whole study on Easter too. The Babylonian goddess of Ishtar, the Aphrodite of the Greeks, and the Roman Venus. See, every... Uh, Every culture of paganism has their own flavor for this same devil goddess. Okay, the Romans, it's Venus. The Greeks, it's Aphrodite. Astaroth, um, 
of the Babylonians, Astarte. You know, you've, you've got, the names are, are many times similar or totally changed, but it's the same devil goddess. It's their version of the pagan trinity. The original being at the Tower of Babel, Semiramis, Tammuz, and Nimrod. Okay, so again, and, and again, Tammuz, the rebirth of the sun god. Okay, the, basically, I guess you can refer to that as the reincarnation of Nimrod through Tammuz. Okay, so it's it's a big warped mess. Okay, but again, this is just um, this is talking about how Solomon fell so far away, and it's a very sad thing if you really read it. I mean, it's to think of where he where he fell from. And again, I'm not saying that because I think I'm Mr. Perfect. I'm just saying it's a sad thing, no matter who it would have happened to. And there's no real evidence in the Bible that Solomon ever repented of his sins. So, it doesn't look real good for for Solomon as far as ever seeing him in heaven. Uh, and I think how many people he actually drew away from the Lord if this is what he brought into Israel with all of these different high places. I mean, if people revered this guy... I mean, the Bible says to whom much is given, much is required. Okay, Who was given more than Solomon on this planet Earth, ever? Who was given more? Who was given more wisdom? Nobody. Who was given more riches? Nobody. So you had a whole world looking up to Solomon. The Queen of Sheba came to hear of his wisdom and all these things. And he turns and goes and serves these other... And I'm not talking just serving one. And I'm not do, talking serving them in secret... He built high places for the worst, most vile, satanic deities, Chemosh, Moloch, Astarte, that required human sacrifice. This was the example he was setting and his other thousand concubines, princesses, and wives who were pagans. This is the example he was setting at the end of his life. How many people did he draw away? How many people ended up going to hell because of Solomon? I'm not saying this because I think I'm better than Solomon. I'm stating facts. Okay, I'm not ho- trying to hold him to a higher accountability than I would hold myself. Because if I did what he did, it would be just as wicked. Okay, so I'm not saying that. It's just, it's a very, it's really heartbreaking when you read that story. I, it, you know, I don't take pleasure in reading that story at all. But it is a warning for us that, that lest, you know, take heed lest we fall. Okay, not to think of ourselves more highly than we ought. So, anyway, let's go further. This is a quote from the Bloodline of the Holy Grail. And it says, um, Now, again, considering the verses in 1 Kings that we just read, this statement is pretty hard to argue with that I'm going to be reading. It says, Other religions, whether in Egypt, Mesopotamia, or elsewhere, accordingly had deities of both sexes. In relation to such theistic ideas, this is the... This is the whole mother goddess worship, you know, and, and then we have the male deities, and sometimes we had deities that what they considered were androgynous, meaning they had both male and female sexual organs or attributes. Like when you see like the goat of Baphomet or Baal represented, most of the time it has female breasts, a goat head, you know, male body part. I mean, it's a mess. Okay, but if you think about it, if you were Satan and you were trying to warp and corrupt as much as you possibly could, that's, you know logically, where you'd end up. 
Um, so, in relation to such theistic ideas, one of the more flexible characters mentioned in the biblical text is King David's son Solomon, celebrated not just for the magnificence and splendor of his reign, but for the wisdom of the man himself. Much later, Solomon's legacy was crucial to the emergent grail, holy grail lore, because he was the true advocate of religious toleration. Think about that. Solomon was revered by these high-level occultists. High-level. Why? One of the reasons was he was a true advocate of religious toleration. How could we come to any other conclusion? If he himself erected high places to Moloch and Chemosh and Astarte and Milcom, the worst, most vile child sacrifice gods that he could possibly go to? Sure, he did it all. He probably was going into the temple and doing... I don't know. I mean, it's, it's, it's a wonder God didn't strike him dead if he still was doing this and going to the temple. I don't know. I really don't know. Scary stuff. The, how he could get that diluted. Be careful who you marry. That's where it started. Pharaoh's daughter. An affinity with the world, an affinity with... What is Egypt always representative of, of the world? Oh, we're always warned about Egypt. Always. Okay, in the Bible. It's never, normally never considered in any kind of positive light. So, <laughs> that's, where, that's where Solomon first went and that's where he first got messed up. That was where the little leaven, leaven at the whole lump came in. So, and then it says, um, during Solomon's era, Jehovah was afforded considerable importance, but other gods were acknowledged as well. well. How can you argue that after reading 1 Kings chapter 11? You can't argue with that anymore. So it was a spiritual uncertain age in which it was not uncommon for individuals to hedge their bets in respect of alternative deities. In other words, well, you know, I got the Lord God Jehovah, but you know, I got to hedge my bets over here with... Milcom and Chemosh and Moloch and Astarte because, you know, Lord God Jehovah is all well and good, but, you know, I need to have my other flavor of the weak deities because they can help me out as well on the side. Well, whereas God says, I will have no other gods before me. And now to set up graven images, the second commandment, which is the one that the Catholics take out of their Ten Commandments because they couldn't have all the little idol worship things going on. And they literally remove the second commandment and split the, I believe it's the 10th commandment into two parts, or the 9th commandment into two parts. It's a fact. They do it. I've got a whole whole study we've done on Catholicism. Just, just reference Catholicism, just the first five letters in the keyword search box, and then click on any of the PDF files. The little white box will say PDF within those teachings, and it will load your boat with information on the Catholic false religion. So, I just find this very sadly interesting, unfortunately. It's a sad thing. During Solomon's era, Jehovah was afforded considerable importance, but other gods were acknowledged as well. And this talks about hedging their bets with alternative deities. After all, with such a plethora of different gods and goddesses receiving homage in the region, it might have been short-sighted to decry all but one. Now remember, this is a quote from Bloodline of the Holy Grail book. Okay? And then it goes on to say, who was to say that the devout Hebrews had got it right? 
Well, only the Lord Jesus Christ, God of the universe. That's all. The one that created the universe, makes the sun burn, the planets spin, puts breath in our lungs, food on our plate, air that we breathe. Just that one, that's all. I mean, I'm saying that tongue-in-cheek, obviously. But see, they loved it. That's why they loved Solomon so much. Because he had such a close relationship with the Lord Jesus Christ at the beginning, actually appeared to him two times, gave him personal instruction, and then fell so far away at the end of his life, it gave these occultists justification. Because they figured, hey, Solomon did it. And got away with it. And God appeared, God Jehovah appeared to him two times. And then he went and went after these other gods. It must be okay for me too. Gave them justification. Well, hey, he was the richest man that ever lived. That appealed to the carnal side of them. He was the wisest man that ever lived. That appealed to the carnal pride side of them. And he went after all these other gods. So he was the full embodiment of the, of religious toleration. Oh, how sick. But that's that's what we're dealing with here. It's a sad thing. Here's another quote from a cult conspiracy. And it says, King Solomon's temple in Jerusalem was regarded as the repository of ancient occult wisdom and symbolism by both the Freemasons and the Knights Templar. Now, I'm not saying Solomon kept occult knowledge in the temple of Jerusalem. He may have. I don't know, and I don't see how they could know. But they're saying it was regarded as the repository of ancient occult wisdom and symbolism by both the Freemasons and the Knights Templar. Now, we do know that he got into some high-level witchcraft. Now, can you imagine? We've got the wisest man on earth now using wisdom, but now the wisdom that he's using is being corrupted. Instead of applying it to the Lord Jesus Christ and his word and being obedient, now he's applying it to essentially witchcraft. I mean, do you think Solomon just kind of got into these alternate religious systems of the highest level deities that involve child sacrifice and human sacrifice and were the ones that God warned us about? you think that he got involved in these things and didn't become an adept or a master of these respective religions? If you were a demon or a devil or Satan, who would you want to target on planet Earth? If there was one person you could target, you would want to target the leader of, essentially, the earth at the time. Who better to target than Solomon? And he gave the devil that opportunity by taking all these wives and becoming demonically infested, clouding his judgment, clouding his wisdom, and he took what God had given him for good and he used it for evil. I think it's very clear. The available evidence suggests that during the 370-year history of the original temple at Jerusalem, it was wholly or partially used for goddess worship for 200 years of that period. No! I don't believe that. Okay. Now, Solomon's apostasy of 1 Kings 11 that we just read was approximately at the year 992 B.C. Okay? Approximately. Let's read this last statement in this occult conspiracy again. The available evidence suggests that during the 370-year history of the original temple at Jerusalem, the one Solomon just built, it was wholly or partially used for God's worship during for 200 years 
of that period. Okay? Let's go to Ezekiel 8, verse 5. Let's see if we have any evidence of this in the Bible. Well, no, the temple couldn't have been used for occult purposes because God would have never permitted it. Well, you'd be surprised what the Lord lets people get away with for a time. Until ju- It's almost like you know they're storing up wrath. It's, it's almost how it, it, I believe it is with, with the Lord. So Ezekiel 8, verse 5. Um, so again, now this is the Lord showing Ezekiel what abominations are going on in the house of God. This is the same temple Solomon built. Okay, now this is around the year 594 B.C. Solomon built the temple around 992 B.C. Okay? So, this is, let's say, okay, how many years later? Uh, mm, About 400 years later. Okay? Then said he unto me, this is God, Son of man, lift up thine eyes, now the way toward the north. So I lifted up the eyes of the way toward the north, and behold, northward at the gate of the altar, this image of jealousy in the entry which I'm not 100% sure what that's in reference to. But then he said, uh, he said, Furthermore unto me, Son of man, seest thou what they do? Even the great abominations that the house of Israel committeth here. It was the house of Israel committing these abominations in the temple at Jerusalem that Solomon had originally built. But turn thee yet again, and thou shalt see greater abominations. And he brought me to the door of the court, and when I looked, behold, a hole in the wall. And then he said unto me, Son of man, dig now in the wall. And when I had digged into the wall, behold, a door. And he said unto me, Go in, and behold the wicked abominations that they do here. Now this is God showing Ezekiel these things. Okay, which is, again, it's a very, very sad thing. So I went in and I saw, and behold, every form of creeping thing, things, and abominable beasts and all the idols of the house of Israel portrayed upon the wall round about. They'd actually put these things on the walls inside the temple. All these abominable images. Okay? And there stood before them seventy men of ancients of the house of Israel. These were Israelites. And in the midst of them stood Jazaniah, the son of Shapham, Shaphan, and every man his censer in his hand, his incense censer, And a thick cloud of incense went up, and he said unto me, Son of man, hast thou seen what the ancients of the house of Israel do in dark, every man in the chambers of his imagery? For they say, the Lord seeth us not, and the Lord hath forsaken the earth. I mean, this is what they had convinced themselves of. The creator God of the universe all of a sudden can't see anymore. (laughs) I mean, that's pretty delusional. There's nothing that we do, there's no place we can go, where we can get away from the Lord. It's just never, ever going to happen. Okay? I mean, other than maybe the lake of fire, but that's not something that should be your goal. So, and even then, you know, he knows. So then it says in verse 13, He said also unto me, Turn thee yet again, and thou shalt see greater abominations that they do. Then he brought me to the door of the gate of the Lord's house, which was toward the north. And behold, there sat woman weeping for guess who? Tammuz! Didn't we just talk about Tammuz? Yeah, we sure did. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Son of Nimrod. Son of Nimrod. Hmm. Semiramis, you know. 
the whole mother goddess baby worship thing, okay, that we get. Queen of Heaven was his mom, Semiramis. Tammuz, the sun god, the child of Semiramis. Now, if we look at Nimrod, Nimrod was the 13th from Adam. 13. Rebellion. Okay? He was the 13th from Adam. He came through Ham, Cush, to Nimrod. Okay, now this was the line that Noah had cursed Canaan because of something that Ham had done. And it said something that he had done unto him when he awoke from his wine. Okay, and it doesn't sound real good to me. And again, I don't want to go too far into that. But again, we've got Ham, Cush, Nimrod. Nimrod uh, was deified as Baal, the sun god. And when he died, Tammuz was kind of like the reincarnation representative of, of him. Okay, so... Um, they were weeping in the temple for Tammuz. Can you imagine this? We've got the temple of the Lord, the holy place, and they've got women in there weeping for Tammuz. It's a wonder, you, you look at this, and it's a wonder God didn't strike them dead. But again, a lot of times he lets people get away with things for a time. You know, so that they have no, no excuse when they stand before him, I believe, as far as, you know... He gave them, I'm sure, gave them plenty of time to repent, and they just didn't do it. Uh, and then verse 15, And he said unto me, Hast thou seen this, O son of man? Turn thee yet again, and thou shalt see greater abominations than these. Verse 16, um, Oh, also, Tammuz is also known to the Greeks as the Adonis. You ever hear, oh, he's a real Adonis, a bohunk, or whatever they call people? Well, that's the Adonis is actually a... Uh, a, another way that you could say Tammuz. So it's it's a lot of these things are um, demonic in their origin as far as what they mean. And he brought me into the inner court of the Lord's house, and behold, at the door of the temple of the Lord, between the porch and the altar, were about five and twenty men, and their backs toward the temple of the Lord. So they had their backs turned to the temple. Okay? And their faces toward the east. And they worship the sun toward the east? Now, hold on, let me ask you a question. If, the, if it was high noon, how could they turn toward the east and worship the sun? They couldn't. They could only do it in the morning, right? When the sun comes up in the east, sets in the west. What is this? This is Ishtar sunrise service. You know how they have Easter sunrise service? This is where it comes from. Worshipping the sun. Well, the women were worshipping Tammuz, who they viewed as the reincarnation of the sun god Nimrod. Tammuz, the sun god. Hey. And then we've got the men with their backs toward the temple, which is an abomination. And they were worshipping toward the east. Worship the sun toward the east. Sun worship again, just in a different repackaged form. This is where we get the Ishtar sunrise service, which is an absolute abomination. Just like going to midnight mass on, on December 25th. Midnight mass. When you combine the words Christ and mass, these are two words that should never be together. The mass is an abomination that the Catholics invented. They're worshiping the sun god. And again, just reference my teaching on, on Xmas, and I'll load your boat on that. And then verse 17, Then he said unto me, Hast thou seen this, O son of man? Is it a light thing 
to the house of Judah that they commit these abominations which they commit here? You talk about God being long-suffering. I feel sorry for the Lord. Do you ever feel sorry for God? I do. I feel sorry for him to have to put up with us. I feel sorry for him to have to put up with me. I remember Melvin Sisson, he would talk about, you ever just get sick and tired of yourself? You ever just get sick and tired of yourself? I know I do. You know, I don't know why God puts up with me. And I look at this and I'm like, thinking, oh my word, I mean, I, how I feel sorry for the Lord having to deal with us. And then he says, Is it a light thing to the house of Judah that they commit the abominations which they commit here? For they have filled the land with violence. And they have returned to provoke me to anger. And lo, they put the branch to their nose. This had something to do, I believe, with divination. Therefore will I also deal in fury. Mine eye shall not spare, neither will I have pity. And though they cry in mine ears and with a loud voice, yet I will not hear them. See, let me tell you something. Modern day Israel... Although they've been put back in their land, they got they got a serious spanking coming. Okay? Serious. And I know that we have the Holocaust, but when they told Pontius Pilate, crucify Jesus Christ, give us Barabbas, let his blood, meaning Jesus Christ's blood, be upon us and our children, they brought upon themselves a curse that they asked to be cursed with. Blindness of part has happened to the Jew until the fullness of the Gentile come in. I'm not being any Semitic. I'm being biblically accurate here in what I'm saying. One third of the Jewish race will finally get saved near the end of the tribulation according to Zechariah. We got into that in the first parts of the teaching here. Okay, but two thirds are going to die. And they're going to die in a horrific way according to Zechariah. Still, one third of the Jewish race is going to be saved. That's probably a lot more than the average race. Remember, narrow is the way which leadeth to life eternal, and few there be that find it. It's just not something that a lot of people get saved. That's God's doing. Uh, but anyway, it's just a, it's, it's a really heavy-duty piece of Scripture here. So, th now we have evidence that, you know, this worship of, of these false gods was actually taking place in the temple. Who had originally set the example for this to happen. Now, I'm not saying Solomon was in the temple. It might have degenerated into this, but he erected high places to Moloch and Chemosh. And I'm telling you right now, those deities required human sacrifice. Solomon, who knows through time how his example ended up corrupting Jews hundreds, possibly thousands of years later. It's hard to say. To whom much is given, much is required. And there was probably not a man on the earth that was given more than Solomon. His legacy still continues. In look at how the occultists revere him. Look at how the Kabbalistic Jews revere him. Look at the example that he set. Look at the potential blood that may be on his hands. I, oh, I know there's got to be a lot. Scary stuff. It really is. I'm not. And again, I'm not here to denigrate him. I'm just looking at this, and it seems pretty obvious. So, this is another quote from the occult, uh, the occult history. And it says, Josephus mentions a book of spells and incantations for summoning demons that was used, that was in use in the early, as early as the first century AD. Its author was supposed to be King Solomon, who figures into the occult mythology as a great magi magician. 
a magical work known as the Key of Solomon ranks next to the legendary emerald tablets of Hermes Trismegertius as the most celebrated of magical texts. Now, again, you would say, oh, I don't believe that. I don't believe Solomon. <laughs> he was into the highest level wicked deities. He was serving them, worshipping them. All his women in his life had turned his heart away from, from the Lord. Are you telling me he wasn't going to take that super intelligent wisdom that he had and use it for evil? Do you think the devil would have been just satisfied with him just saying, well, I'm just going to be a figurehead and kind of worship these deities just a little bit? I doubt it. Solomon reminds me of the type of guy, if he was going to do something, he was going to go all the way. If he was going to have wisdom about a subject, he was going to have wisdom all the way. It, again, I, I can't be dogmatic. I wasn't there. But it sure seems like there's evidence to suggest this, if nothing else. Let's go further. This is another quote from Occult Conspiracy. How does Solomon feature in the tradition of goddess worship? During the Middle Ages, the Hebrew king gained an infamous reputation as a master magician who could raise elemental spirits and several grimroars and magical workbooks were either named after him. Now, again, here's something else to think about. If you were Satan, the number one target of anybody on planet Earth would be Solomon. Because Solomon could influence more people than any other person on the planet. And there was also more people that revered him and respected him, which would make his influence greater. So if, if you were Satan, logically enough, you would target him. He did that through all the women. Pulled his heart away. Now, also, if you were Satan, who on planet Earth would you, let's say bend over backwards more to try to help and to recruit and to accommodate more than Solomon. I mean, Satan can, can, you know, bestow his powers upon whomever he chooseth. If Solomon was willing to bow the knee to Baal, which we obviously know he was, Chemosh, Moloch, Milcom, Astaroth, Satan was going to reward him for that, and I believe he would have rewarded for that him in a very gigantic way, more than anyone else on the planet, in order to get him on his side. You talk about putting a carrot out in front of somebody, in order, I mean, he probably gave Solomon whatever he wanted, as long as Solomon would come over to his side. It just seems logical. I mean, when you look at this, um, he was, and this is going back to this quote, he was generally regarded as a powerful magus, healer, and exorcist. And today, some born-again Christians denounce him as a devil worshiper who led the Israelites away from the true God. In the apocryphal Book of Wisdom, written in the first century B.C., Solomon is quoted as saying, quote, God gave me the true knowledge of things as they are, an understanding of the structure of the world and the way in which the elements work, the beginning and the end of the eras and what lies in between, the cycles of the year and the constellations, the thoughts of men, the power of spirits, the virtues of roots. I learnt it all, secret and manifest. See, unfortunately, Solomon was the wisest man on earth. Now he could take this unbelievable wisdom that no man had ever possessed and use it for evil. Who could attain a higher level in witchcraft than this man? If he set his mind to it, and his heart, and we know his heart was drawn away. The Bible's very clear. So you have to ask yourself the question, who would be more capable than Solomon of carrying out this last statement that I just read? Who on the planet, who has ever lived that would be more capable? 
Also, who would be a bigger target of the devil? Pride and idolatries, the woman, all led to his fall from once being humble before God to now being an enemy of God, in essence. Remember, the Bible says, there's a verse in the Bible that says, the gifts and the callings of God are without repentance. The gifts and the callings of God are without repentance. So, you can have somebody that's been gifted by God. Let's say, a preacher, for instance. And we've all heard the story. Preacher starts out, he's a man of God, he's on fire for God. He gets into uh, an illicit affair, or he gets into whatever. A homosexual, worst case scenario. And yet, for many years, he had been having this going on, because typically they don't get caught right off the bat. Let's say he had been doing this for ten years. And yet his preaching didn't seem to have ever wavered. He seemed to be the same strong man of God he was when he first started out. How does that happen? Because the gifts and the callings of God are without repentance. He still had the gifts and callings. He hadn't repented. He didn't have to. Now, God's not going to let him get away with it forever if, if, they're, if they're his kid. Okay, but again, that's, that's how you can actually um, start to explain this. So, remember, save Jesus, he was the wisest person that ever lived. In the later part of his life, it is apparent that he was not using this wisdom for good. Okay, again, just some things to think about here. So, if we go further, regardless of their ultimately Jewish descent, the Merovingians were not practicing Jews. The Catholic Gregory of Tours describes them as followers of idolatrous practices. But the priestly Merovingians were not pagan in any sense of being unenlightened. Now, remember, the Merovingians are going to try to trace their lineage through Solomon. The Merovingians are very, very much tied in with the whole Freemasonic Babylonian mystery of religion. Who better to have in their lineage than Solomon, the master who they refer to as the master magician? Uh, the Merovingians, this, their spiritual cult was not dissimilar to that of the Druids. In fact, there's a lot of evidence to prove that they were the ones that actually started. Actually, the Danites and them had a lot to do with the Druids in their um, religion. Okay, The high Druid priests over the Celts. And they were greatly revered as esoteric teachers, judges, faith healers, and clairvoyants. These are the Merovingians, this, this, this line that we talk about. Faith healers? Yeah. Satan heals all the time. You go into all these, you go into a lot of different religions, and there's a lot of people that get healed. That's why you can't, that's why you cannot rely on lying signs and wonders or miracles or healings in order to judge if that is of God or not. Unless it lines up with the word of God and they're glorifying the Lord Jesus Christ, it's, you know, it's a demonic thing. Most of the time, Satan can heal. That's what you got to understand. People are going to hear Obama speak and they're getting spontaneously healed. He's laying hands on people, but they're not reporting it because he's done said. He says the reason that he doesn't want this reported is that his time has not yet come. Just like he's quoting from Jesus when he turned the water into wine, yeah, that's blasphemy. Dan Brown's book, new book, The Solomon Key, not Dan Brown's, the guy that wrote The Da Vinci Code too, The Solomon Key is based on the Key of Solomon, which is the Seal of Solomon, which is the pagan symbol, 
which is called the Star of David, or really the Seal of Solomon. It's not the Star of David. David didn't have anything to do with that symbol. I don't believe David did. David repented. David was a man after God's own heart. David sought the Lord God with all his heart, all his mind, all his strength, and all his soul. David, okay, did some bad things like we all have, but he repented ultimately. Okay? It's not the Star of David. It's the Seal of Solomon. The Seal of Solomon, a pagan symbol, uh, is there to divert uh, suspicion that it is an occult symbol. And, and that's why they call it the Star of David, because they want to divert suspicion. Because David was above reproach. Well, if it's good enough for David, it's good enough for me. That's why I have it on the Israeli flag. It's an abomination. You talk about bringing the whole nation under a curse. It's a hexagram. Hex, meaning curse. You, you have adopted that and put that on your national flag? Well, no wonder they still can't see that Jesus Christ is the Messiah and he fulfilled all these biblical prophecies down to the letter. They can't see it. They're still blind. Blindness is part has happened to the Jew until the fullness of the Gentile come in. The seal of Solomon is the six-pointed star and it represents the star of Remphan. Ah, we're going to look at that in a second. The Assyrian Babylonian god of the planet Saturn. Hmm, Saturn. Wow, Saturn has six letters, six planet from the sun, also representative of Satan. Kind of sounds a lot like it, doesn't it? So Saturn, six letters, six planet from the sun, very, very close to uh, the word Satan. The star of Remphan is representative of Saturn. The six-pointed star. Six-pointed star, huh? Associated with Saturn. Six letters. Six planet from the sun. Associated with a hexagram. Six-pointed star. Huh. Wow. Imagine that. Revelation 13.8 says, Here is wisdom. Let him that hath understanding count the number of the beast, for it is the number of man. And his number is 603 score and six. Here God is revealing that the number of the beast, 666, is the number of man. Solomon, known for his wisdom, whose mark was the six-pointed star. And there's certain ways you can derive 666 from the hexagram. Okay? So, Amos 5.26 says, But ye have borne the tabernacle of your Molech in Shun, your images, the star of your God, which ye made to yourselves. Huh. Acts 7.43 says, Yea, ye took up the tabernacle of Moloch. Now this is when Stephen was indicting the religious Jews. Okay? And then he got stoned as a result of this. But Stephen says in Acts 7.43, Yea, ye took up the tabernacle of Moloch, the star of your god Remphan, which is the six-pointed hexagram, figures which ye made to worship them. Solomon probably started this. Because, I mean, this is something they had been doing. The tabernacle of Moloch? Moloch was one, was one of the high, was one of the deities that um, requires uh, human and child sacrifice that Solomon clearly built high places to. He was an example. The star of your god, Remphan. Not a good thing. Um, in 1 Kings 11.7, Solomon built a high place to Moloch. Second Chronicles nine, thirteen, and First Kings ten fourteen says, "Now the weight of the gold that came to Solomon in one year was six hundred three score and six talents of gold." This is the six 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 again. 
Uh, we've already talked about Revelation 13.8 where it talks about 666. So just, again, some interesting parallels here. Here's a, another quote from uh, Albert Pike from Morals and Dogma. The lion, oh, I can, and we've already said this one, but I'll just say it again. The lion that guarded the ark and held in its mouth the key wherewith to open figuratively represents Solomon, the lion of the tribe of Judah. Okay, this is a false Christ, again, who preserved and communicated the key to the true knowledge of God, of his laws, and of the profound mysteries of the moral and physical universe, and still holds in his mouth the key of the enigma of the Sphinx. Now, again, the highest level occultists on the planet are basically. Will many, many times I'll come back to Solomon as being the highest level occultist that ever lived. Okay, and all this esoteric knowledge that he possessed. Uh, here's another quote from the occult, a history. And it says, in mysticism, the term as above, so below, means that the soul and God are one and the same. In magic, the principle is altogether more complicated. Man is the microcosm, whose symbol is the five-pointed star or the pentacle. The universe is the macrocosm, and its symbol being the six-pointed star, or the hexagram, or the symbol of Solomon. Okay, And again, I don't have a problem calling it the seal of Solomon, because there's a high likelihood he'd use that. Um, This is a quote from a book, The Six-Pointed Star, I believe. This is by O.J. Graham. Really good book if you want to read about this. Uh, if you want to read a whole book on it, you can get it's just a little book. It's only about 100 pages. O.J. Graham, Six Pointed Star. And um, again, I've done a whole teaching on this with PDF files on the hexagram. I believe unequivocally proving that there's no doubt this is one of the most wicked symbols in all of witchcraft. Finally, the state of Israel was created by the United Nations in 1948. His symbol, Israel's symbol, the six-pointed star, adorns the Israeli kismet and flies on the flag of Israel. In retrospect, the six-pointed star was an Egyptian occult symbol which King Solomon adapted when he went into idolatry and witchcraft and built an altar for the Ashtaroth star. Remember Ashtarte? Ashtaroth was one of the mounds that he built. It was seen in the Arab associations with the Jews and these were obviously Kabbalists. They used the Kabbalah. Till the 16th century and the influence on the Kabbalistic Isaac Luria to the 17th century when Mayor Amchal Bauer used it on his door. He was the first Rothschild. Okay? Rothschild means red shield. And on the shield outside their door was a hexagram. It was in used in high-level Kabbalah or Jewish witchcraft And again, it was kind of like their seal, but it was also, they used it as a, you know, like a protection thing. And, you know, there there is, a lot of people will get into a cult and they'll have their own little thing that they use, like talismans and things of this nature, to demonically protect them. In In that documentary I was watching about Hitler, it showed how way before Hitler ever took power in World War I, the main talisman that the Germans were wearing in World War I in the trenches of 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 that war were the swastika. It was the main talisman they were using to protect themselves. So now if you went through war, evidently they said Hitler was was fearless in battle. He was fearless. I mean, he was like from the first day he started, he, the commanders were just they couldn't believe they were so impressed with him because of his bravery and his valor. 
So they're looking at Hitler. He's obsessed with the Aryan, with the towels, with the, with, with the swastika and all these other things. And again, he ended up becoming their chosen one to, to uh, start this, the, the thing, uh, all the things that he got into, raising up this Nazi the Nazism and the Aryan and the, and the, and the uh, but he had a lot of very, very high-level occultists behind him. He had a lot of money, um, primarily through an organization called IG Farben that we talked about in previous studies, in our studies on pharmacia. That was the same money that backed Hitler, the roots of the modern-day pharmaceutical industry, which is where we get pharmacy, pharmacia, which is where we get the root word for sorcery in the Bible. So, again, that was just an interesting side note there. So, Mayor Amchal Bauer used it on his door, the six-pointed star, and then he changed his family name to Rothschild, meaning Red Shield, incorporating it into his family coat of arms, the six-pointed star. Finally, it became the insignia for Zionism. Okay, now we have Christian Zionism. I have, I, I get... I really believe that this whole Christian Zionist Hebrew Roots movement is one of the most dangerous things that go on in modern day, quote, Christian circles. I really do. And again, that's why I'm going to have to do a whole study where I've, I know I've mentioned this before, but uh, I really believe it's leading a lot of people straight to hell. I'll go so far as to say that. I really believe that. These are people that are, for the most part, obsessed with going back to the law, being under the yoke of bondage, having to use all their fancy names in order to describe Jesus. They're doing this, they're doing this, and they're doing this. And the Bible talks about why do you desire again to be entangled again with the yoke of bondage? I am afraid of you lest I bestowed upon you labor in vain, is the way Paul puts it. You observe days and times and years. All these warnings in Galatians, in Hebrews, in Romans about this very thing of being again entangled with the yoke of bondage, being again entangled with the law, being justified by works. And it relates to what we're talking about here today. It really does. And trust me, it's all by design. There are people behind those movements that want to entangle you again with the yoke of bondage. Want to get you involved in false religion and destroy you. And that's what it boils down to. I don't think there's anything that aggravates me more than that sect of Christendom. I, I just... <clears throat> I, it, it's just very near and dear to me. I've had so much many battles and so many experiences with it. And I see how it has corrupted people. It's just a scary thing. So I'm going to go further here. And this is um, a study on the Merovingians. Uh, another study here. And it says, The term Merovingian is said to derive from the word Merovi, who was the king of the Franks from 447 A.D. to 458. According to the legend, as explained in the bloodline of the Holy Grail, Merovi had two fathers, King Cloden and a strange beast of the sea. Now, understand that you, you can discount all this and this and that, 
But the Bible says, as it was in the days of Noah, so shall it be in the days of the coming of the Son of Man. The main thing going on in Noah's day was the sons of God. They were good angels. They fell, saw the daughters of men, took them wise, all that they chose, went into them. They conceived, bare children, and they were giants. These were the men of old, men of renown. Okay, so when we talk about this beast of the sea, we're talking about a fallen angel essentially procreating with a human. Okay, offspring. It's no different than what was going on in Genesis 6. And then you've got giants all <laughs> when they went into the promised land. And the Bible says in Genesis 6, it was also, it was in that time and also after that. You've got all these giants that it talks about um, that the Jews had to fight going into the promised land. That was the reason they stayed in the, in the wilderness for 40 years, because they were afraid to fight them. They said we were grasshoppers in their sight. The only ones that came back with a positive report was Caleb and Joshua. And they were the ones that got that, that were everybody else had to die, die out, and they were the ones that got to um, usher in the Jews, the next generation of Jews, into the promised land to fight these giants. And they overcame them. So despite recent claims that the Merovingian race was sired by Jesus Christ, which is their claim, okay, and Mary Magdalene is therefore the divine, the legend of the King Merovee conceals the true origins of of the Merovingian race in remote antiquity. Merovius derives from the French words mer, meaning sea, and vir, meaning werewolf or dragon. The book of Revelation informs us that the dragon is the devil and Satan. Hence, the esoteric allusion to the Merovingian's progenitor, King Merovie, is a king of France sired by a mysterious sea beast, is a claim that the Merovingian dynasty has literal satanic descent. Okay, in other words, that the Merovingian dynasty has actually potentially fallen angelic bloodlines. Okay, and again, as it was in the days of Noah, so shall it be in the days of the coming of the Son of Man. This should not be a surprise to us. But again, you're not getting it in the average churches, so, <laughs> you know, I'm sure it was a shock to them in Noah's day too when it all first started coming out. But uh, this is what we're dealing with. And Revelation 12, 7, 9, and 13, 1 through 2 says, And there was war in heaven, Michael and his angels fought against the dragon, and the dragon fought and his angels, and the great dragon was cast out, that old serpent called the devil and Satan, which deceiveth the whole world. He was cast out into the earth, and his angels were cast out with him. And I stood upon the sand of the sea, and saw a beast rise up out of the sea, and the dragon gave him his power and his seat and great authority. Bloodline of the Holy Grail, Holy Blood, Holy Grail, and the Da Vinci Code were popular books marketed for mass consumption and, as such, were propaganda tools which concealed the true origins of the Merovingian race. The demonic origins in the history of the Merovingian dynasty, dynasty also known as the Dragon Dynasty, in honor of the great red dragon of Revelation 12 and 13, are revealed in less available insider sources, such as Gardner's Realm of the Ring Lords, and Kenneth Grant and the Merovingian Mythos. So in other words, there, there are things that are, if you want to study the subject further, there's books they've released to the masses, and then there's really deep books that you can reference, like this Gardner's Realm of the Ring Lords. And Kenneth Grant, Merovingian Mythos. I'm not advising you read those. I'm just saying that they've got a lot more information on this. The Nephilim were banished 
to the center of the earth for disobeying God by mating with the daughters of men. Now, I don't think they were banished. Uh, this is from Kenneth Grant in the Merovingian Mythos. Okay, so again, this is from a, a guy that's as unsaved as you could possibly get. Okay, but he's saying the Nephilim, which were these giants. Remember, the Nephilim aren't the fallen angels. The fallen angels produce the Nephilim. The Nephilim is the Hebrew translated word, which means the fallen ones. It's translated from the word giants in Genesis 6. Nephilim. Okay? So these were the fallen ones. The giants. The Nephilim. The Nephilim were banished to the center of the earth for disobeying God by mating with the daughters of men and teaching them the forbidden arts. No, they weren't. They were killed. Because when God sent the flood, he killed everything that could have breath in their lungs. Okay? They were air breathers. They got killed with the flood. They weren't banished to the center of the earth. Now, they're disembodied spirits that emanated and operated through them. According to the book of Enoch, these disembodied spirits go and roam the world seeking a body to inhabit. Just like the Bible says, just like Jesus talked about in the, in the Gospels. These are where we get the word demons from. Fallen angels, I believe, are something totally different. Now, the book of Enoch is referenced in Jude and one other place in the Bible. And there are so many things in the book of Enoch that strengthens the Word of God. I'm not saying it's canon. I'm not saying it's the Word of God. I'm saying that it will give you a tremendous eye-opening look at Genesis 6, though. And if you get the book of Enoch, get the one that's the blue hardback cover. Now, I've done... If you go to my cloning teaching, if you push in cloning... The second part of that teaching, I quote several verses from the book of Enoch that you can go and you can listen to several verses from there and then I cross-reference it with the King James Bible. Back and forth, back and forth. If you get the blue hard-covered edition of the book of Enoch, it will give you all the King James... Wherever it says a, a verse and wherever there's a confirming verse in the King James Bible, it'll give you that verse at the bottom of the page. I haven't had it do anything but increase my faith. Okay, I'm not saying it's canonical. I'm not saying it's the Word of God. But it is... I believe in excellent commentary. And um, we'll look at that a little bit more in coming weeks. But uh, going further, he's saying in this publication, the Nephilim have been identified as the father of the Merovingians. The Merovingian race was sired by a water beast known as the Quintar. The Quintar took the form of a sea bull. Aleister Crowley's personal seal was a sea goat. Aleister Crowley, the wickedest man on the earth, the beast, they called himself. Grant, writing of Crowley's Seal of the Beast, says the beast is a sea goat or an amphibious monster, identical with Chutalum, or the Quintar, or the Bull of the Deep. Grant writes as a footnote, the waters under the earth, the home of the ancestors, or the subconscious atavisms of the race. Um... And again, a lot of times you get in these quotes from these real esoteric, high-level occultists, and they don't make a lot of sense. But the Merovingian claims of angelic ancestry seems to be highly sensationalized, fictional, and too bizarre to be true. But this may not be the case, for these authors correctly state that the demonic origins of such a race is supported in Scripture. Uh, the Nephilim were banished to the center of the earth for disobeying God by mating with the daughters of men and teaching them the forbidden arts. No, they weren't. They were all killed. Okay. But the Bible says they were also after that. So again, we had more fallen angels mating with more women to create another race of giants, primarily in the promised land, after the flood. Well known. They just got their theology wrong. Uh, Genesis 6, 1-7 through 7, 
And it came to pass, when men began to multiply on the face of the earth, and the daughters were born unto them, that the sons of God saw the daughters of men, that they were fair, and they took them wise, all which they chose. And the Lord said, My spirit shall not always strive with man, for that he is also flesh, yet his days shall be an hundred and twenty years. And there were giants in the earth in those days, and also after that. When the sons of God came in and the daughters of men, they bare them children to them. The same became many mighty men, which were of old, men of renown. And it goes on. God had to kill everybody. Other than the eight on board the ark. Because the seed had been so corrupted. We got into that in previous teachings. The Hebrew word nephil is properly translated fallen ones. Okay? And refers to the offspring of the fallen angels who mated with the human women on Mount Hermon in the land of Canaan. We're going to be talking a lot more about Mount Hermon in the upcoming teachings. That's what the Book of Enoch said. The fallen angels actually descended onto Mount Hermon. Now, this isn't this isn't stuff that's going to affect salvation. Okay, it's just if we can prove it through other means, if we can prove some of these things through other occult sources or even biblical sources, you know, that's that's what I'm endeavoring to do here. Just not to get one side or one opinion of this matter. And then it says, it may be that after that, that they talk about in Genesis 6-4, refers to a second invasion of fallen angels after the flood. Well, it has to. Because the, because the Nephilim were killed. So you had more fallen angels. Which would explain why the Israelites found giants or Nephilim in Canaan upon entry into the Promised Land. We already mentioned that. Okay, so if we go to um, Numbers... 1333, wow, what a number there, Numbers 1333, 13 being the number of rebellion, 33 being the highest uh, level number to the Freemasons and to many occultists worldwide, 33 is also representative of promise in biblical numerics, but it's also one of the highest level numbers that we can talk about in biblical, uh, in the occult literature. Uh, Numbers 13.33 says, and there, were, and there we saw giants, the sons of Anak, or the Anakim, okay, which were come of the giants, and we were in our own sight as grasshoppers, and so were we in their sight. And this is why they got so scared, because they were looking at the giant, and they weren't keeping their eyes fixed on God, who brought them there. They got their eyes off God and onto the giants. Now, from a carnal standpoint, I can understand that would probably be easy to do. Okay, but this is why in the days and times that we're going into, I can't tell you how bad it's probably going to get from, I believe it's as scary as it was for them going into the promised land. It's probably going to be more scary what we've got to face. And I'm talking about literal manifestations of these types of things on planet Earth. I really do believe that. We're going to probably encounter some of the very same things as it was in the days of Noah. So shall it be in the days of the coming of the Son of Man. And you better learn to have your rock built on the Lord Jesus Christ in His Word. Because that's most likely going to be our only defense. Taking up the full arm of God. The sword of the Spirit. Above all, taking up the shield of faith, wherewith you will be able to quench all the fiery darts of the wicked ones. 
For we battle not against flesh and blood, but against princes, principalities, rules of wickedness in high place, against powers, these types of things. The weapons of our warfare are not carnal, but mighty through the pulling down of strongholds. These types of verses are the ones we need to commit to memory. I can do all things through Christ which strengthen me. Greater is he that is in me than he that is in the world. Okay? So again, these that's how... We, you're not going to defeat this enemy through big guns and these types of things. It's, I really believe, through the Word of God, the sword of the Spirit, faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. So, the following is an excerpt from an informative essay on the Nephilim, discusses in 6.4, uh, discusses in Genesis 6.4. Some commentators have speculated that the Nephilim of Numbers 13 belonged to a second eruption of fallen angels. Since the earlier Nephilim had been used to, has been destroyed in a flood, and they were seen and they see an allusion to this in Genesis 6-4, where it states that there were Nephilim in the earth in those days, and also after that, when the sons of God came in unto the daughters of men. Could it be that the after that was in reference to the Nephilim found in Canaan during the Israelite entry into the land? Well, of course it is. Obviously. If so, it could explain why the Lord commanded the total extermination of the Canaanites as he had earlier ordered the near annihilation of the human race. See, people love to go to that portion of the Bible and say, oh yeah, I, I saw something the other day, some guy had put out there. Uh, oh, and it was basically like, tell me this really isn't in the Bible. Like, read this verse and tell me that, that this is the God you serve. And it was basically one of those verses where God had commanded them to wipe out everything. And what they're not seeing is that when the seed of mankind has been corrupted, particularly if you've got this fallen angelic corruption, there is no redeeming that seed once it's corrupted. There is no redeeming that seed once it's... it's there's no way it can go to heaven. Jesus Christ did not come here to pay the sin debt for giants, for hybrid defiled humanity or whatever you want to term He did not come to pay the sin debt for that. Or for fallen angels or anything like that. Strictly for humans. Okay? So, it's much more merciful for God to tell them to go into one of these cities and destroy everything. Sometimes it was, it was destroy all the animals too. They had even been defiled. Well, what did they do in, in Genesis 6? It says in the book of Enoch that they defiled the animals, the fish... The birds, they had defiled everything. When they went into these cities, many of them, the, the, the sin and the corruption and the curses were so bad that they had to destroy everything. Achan couldn't even get away with taking a Babylonian garment and some wedges of silver out of Jericho, cursed the whole camp. They lost the next battle at Ai. And then they had to kill Achan and his family, which is a sad thing too. So understand, when God told them to eradicate everything in these cities, He wasn't doing it because He was trying to be, you know, mean or whatever. He, there was no other choice in order to actually correct and fix the problem. Now, were they faithful in all these things? No. They weren't. They, there was a lot of races they let, you know, partially live. And, you know, look what happened to Solomon. A lot of the same races that they were told to kill, Solomon ended up marrying them, brought them in. Look what happened to him. On the women, you know. So, Sodom and Gomorrah were Canaanite settlements. 
They practice cult prostitution in conjunction with their fertility rites. Jude 7 suggests that the inhabitants of Sodom and Gomorrah were so depraved that fornication with angels may have been practiced. As Genesis 19 also attests, Jude 6 and 7 says, And the angels, which kept not their first estate, but left their own habitation, they left heaven. In Genesis 6, He hath reserved in everlasting chains, under darkness, under the judgment of the great day. Even as Sodom and Gomorrah, and the cities about, going in like manner. Giving themselves over to fornication, and going after strange flesh. See, the angels didn't have any... any, um, biblical warrant to go after women. That, to them, was strange flesh. These are different types of beings. And we're supposed to reproduce after our own kind, even the seeds. And humans are supposed to reproduce after their own kind. You you, you don't want this hybrid um, combining here going on. So, in going after strange flesh, are set forth for an example, suffering the vengeance of eternal fire. And again, that was Jude 6 and 7. And then, then we can read uh, Genesis 19, 1-5. And there came two angels to Sodom at evening, at even, which means evening, and Lot sat in the gate of Sodom, which he shouldn't have ever been there, let's face it. And Lot, seeing them, rose up to meet them. And he bowed himself with his face toward the ground. And he said, Behold now, my lords, turn in, I pray you, into your servant's house, and tarry all night, and wash your feet, and you shall rise up early and go on your ways. Now, I'm not 100% sure if Lot immediately identified and knew these guys were angels, or whether he just knew they were holy. Because they appear as men. Angels in the Bible, when they appear to humans, always appear as a man. Okay, Not as a woman with wings with a halo. And I've done a whole study on that. You can reference just key and angels. Um, so, he, then he goes on to say, And they said, Nay, but we will abide in the street all night. These were the, what the angels said. And he pressed upon them greatly, and they turned in unto him and entered into his house. And he made them a feast, and he did bake unleavened bread, and they did eat. But before they lay down, the men of the city, even the men of Sodom, compassed the house round about, both young and old, all the people from every quarter, and they called unto Lot, and he said unto them, Where are the men which came in to thee this night? Bring them out to us, that we may know them. That we may know them. They wanted to sodomize these angels. Now, it's very well known in the occult that yes, there is many times, in order to go to another um, degree in the occult, you will have to have sex or some type of fornication with a demonic entity, a fallen angel, whatever. Okay, I, I, and again, I, I'm not saying go and research all that, but it's well known that they do that. Now, whether they knew what they were dealing with or not, I don't really know. But this is how depraved these sodomites were, and this is how depraved they are to this day. The sodomites are getting more and more rabid now, particularly that they they didn't pass this proposition 8 or whatever and it didn't pass in Florida in regard to gay marriage they're getting more and more rabid and their true colors are showing more and more and more and this reminds me of the way that the sodomites in this country are acting now they're really the true colors are coming and they're and they're going to come off more and more and more so just understand that that you're dealing when you're dealing with a sodomite you're dealing with a demon possessed person the Canaanite territory of northern Israel was later occupied by the tribe of Dan. 
whose worship of Baal and Pan involves such fertility rites at Mount Hermon, also called Mount Sion. And we're going to be talking about that next week. Now remember, Mount Sion, the word Sion is used in the New Testament to represent Mount Zion, which is Jerusalem. It's always symbolic of Jerusalem, Zion. But in the Greek translation of Zion, it's translated Sion in Greek in the New Testament. In the Old Testament, it's actually, Mount Zion is actually referred to specifically as Mount Hermon. Mount Zion, which is referred to over a hundred different times in the Old Testament, is in reference to Jerusalem. So again, we're going to be doing a study on that, but I just wanted to bring that up. Okay, so it's very important you, you distinguish that. The Merovingians are the offspring of the tribe of Dan, which intermarried with the Canaanite Tutha de Danan, also known as the dragon lords of the Anu, like the Anunnaki, which is what we just talked about, the Anak the giants, the Nephilim, because they were said to be the offspring of fallen angels of the Anunnaki. When God dispersed the northern tribes for their wickedness, the tribe of Dan migrated to Greece and later to France and the British Isles, <clears throat> where they established pagan priesthood and royal dynasties of this demonic bloodline. That's the only, not the only place they migrated. Obviously, they migrated into the, into, uh, the Mount Hermon region as well. Okay, so that's something that's very important to uh, to understand there. The Tuthia de Danon, or the dragons of the Anu, before settling in Ireland from about 800 B.C., were the Black Sea Princes of Scythia, now the Ukraine. So from a single cast of the original royal blood, whether known as the Sangreal or the Albigians, or the Ringlords, we discover many of the descriptive terms which sit at the very heart of popular folklore. For here, in this one notable race, okay, this from the Danites, okay, we have elves, fairies, pixies, not the beguiling little folk, but distinguished kings and queens of the dragon succession. Okay, now that was from Gardner. I believe he was the one of the highest witches in the last hundred years. And that was from his book, In the Realm of the Lord of Rings. This is a quote from a guy named Van Buren in The Sign of the Dove, and he says, In Irish legends, the Tuthia de Danon, who were considered to be demigods, were said to have possessed a grail-like vessel. These teachers of wisdom were the founders of the Druidic priesthood. And again, this stemmed from the tribe of Dan. We're going to be getting a lot more into Dan next week and how the tribe of Dan relates to this. Remember, the tribe of Dan is the only tribe that is not included in Genesis in Revelation 7 in regard to the 144,000 that were sealed. They replaced the tribe of Dan with the tribe of Manassas. Dan is excluded. Manassas is was which was considered a half tribe in the Old Testament. Who was Manassas? Manassas was one of the sons of Joseph. Joseph and Ephraim were um, or Joseph had two sons, Ephraim and Manassas. Manassas was the older, okay? And Manassas was a half-tribe that um, uh, was actually the half-tribe that was replaced the tribe of Dan in the 144,000 that were sealed. So Dan had to have done something to make God mad <laughs> in order for him not to be in the 144,000 that were sealed. Okay, so uh, again, I'm, I'm kind of running late here in the second teaching, I will go ahead and... Uh, I'm going to probably go to a part three and just finish this up today.